as we begin to study the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapters 1 through 4, we begin at a place that a lot of people, when they come to read Matthew, skim through quickly and move on to the rest. Uh, the Lord really tests our confession that all Scripture is inspired at this point. I really test our belief that all Scripture is inerrant at this point, or at least of equal value. Uh, I heard one pastor who kind of taught me how to preach to some extent tell me that all Scripture is inspired, but not all Scripture is equally as useful for a Sunday morning sermon. And yet I find myself looking at Matthew's Gospel and seeing this text and thinking perhaps there may not have been a better way to begin Matthew's Gospel than exactly what he has written here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In some sense, the gospel accounts that we have at the beginning of the New Testament, Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are, are like biographies of Jesus, uh, but they're a little different. You know, most biographies that you read don't spend at least a third or a half of the time talking about the last week of someone's life, which all of our gospels do. There's a sense in which the gospels are as much or more obituaries than they are biographies. There's also a sense in which they do something rather novel, which is their theological interpretations of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do not hide their opinions that Jesus isn't just some man that was from Nazareth and, and lived in that area of Palestine during that time of the world in Israel. No, they, they tell very clearly who they think this Jesus is. We begin here in verse 1. It is the genealogy of who? Jesus Christ. Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. Very clearly they take, they take Jesus and they, they show that he is much more than just a mere historical figure deserving of a biography. I brought with me this morning here on the front pew a, a, a little book. It's called Rube Burrow Desperado. It's a biography of perhaps a, a lesser known but still equally infamous train robber that came about 10 or 15 years perhaps after the time of Jesse James and the James Gang, which I'm sure you've heard of them. Rube and Jim Burrow were brothers. They started their own gang and robbed their own trains. And by the time that, the, that Rube was shot and killed, he was at that time before his passing one of the most wanted men in America since Jesse James himself. Now, why do I bring all this up? Well, this biography uh, is of a kind of an unsavory character, which when we look to the genealogy of Jesus, we're going to see a few of those in his past, his, his ancestors. But what makes this book that I have so unique is in the back, my grandmother has written out my genealogy that traces uh, Rube Burrow to be my sixth cousin. I was, I was looking up some things on Rube Burrow on, on Google in preparation for this, and I, saw, I found an article that said Rube Burrow, the, mo the Southern's most degenerate man, or something like that. I thought, great, this is my family. Uh, but as we look to the Gospel of Matthew, we see this genealogy, but unlike the one written by my grandmother, which is somewhat precise, it tells directly my, you know, my relation to my father, and then her, and then her, my great-grandmother, and all the way back to the mother of the two kids, one of which became my family line, and one became Rue Burroughs' family line. Unlike that genealogy, Matthew doesn't 
take his time to recount every single person that could go into a genealogy of Jesus. And he does it in a particular way because Matthew wants to make a larger point. And and when we look at Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, we are seeing the history that led to Christ's arrival in time and space. We see God's mercy, God's judgment, and God's faithfulness on full display when we see the ancestors of Jesus that led to his coming. So we first look at this first verse, and we see that it is the book of the genealogy. Now that phrase, the book of the genealogy, in the Greek only occurs in two other places, and none of them are in the New Testament. They only occur in two other places in the Bible, which is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They occur in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. The most immediately pressing one being Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. At the end of God's creation, in which he created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, we have this summarizing verse. And it says this, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When it says these are the generations in Genesis chapter 2, 4, it's saying the book of generations, the book of genealogy, the book of actually Genesis. The, the word Genesis itself is connected to this idea of the generations. So we have in the genealogy of Jesus, really the genesis of Jesus, the beginning of Jesus, what the, the primordial history of Jesus, what happened before all of us were around. And so when we look, we see that Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus is the Christ. That means he is the Messiah. That means he is the anointed one of God. That means he is the representative of Israel to the world. And so when we read that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we see that we have here the genesis of Jesus, the beginning of of Jesus. We have his ancestors recorded. And it's not just that he is the Messiah, it is that he is the son of David, which becomes an important phrase, especially in Matthew's gospel. It was David in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17 in which God said that his Messiah would come, that God would establish a king from the lineage of David who would sit on the throne forever. But he's not just the son of David, he's the son of Abraham. Abraham was given the promises. In Genesis 12, 18, and 22, he was given the promise, the covenant, that his offspring from his seed would the whole world be blessed. That God's blessing would go not just to some particular family, but to everyone. It would be for everyone. So since Christ is the son of David and he is the son of Abraham, his kingdom and his reign will be forever and it will be for everyone. It will not be for a particular race or a particular nation or even a particular tribe. It will be for everyone, for every tongue, for every tribe and every nation. As Jesus himself says at the end of Matthew's gospel, that we are to go and make disciples of all nations. And so, we see in the genealogy a movement, a movement from Abraham 
to David, from David to the exile in Babylon, and from the exile in Babylon to Jesus himself. It's an upward movement from Abraham to David. Abraham was a good start maybe, but David's even better. Kind of goes downward to the exile in Babylon. All those lists of kings and all the bad they did and how the nation was oppressed by others. And then it's coming back up here to lead to Jesus Christ. Now when we look at the genealogy, just verses 2 through 6, moving from Abraham to David, I want you to notice some names. And I don't want you to focus on all the names that you might know immediately of the men. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and his brothers. You, you may have heard those names before. That's what, not what's interesting. It makes a whole lot of sense that Matthew would try to tie Jesus directly to this family line. In fact, we know that, that it has to be such, because not only is he the son of Abraham and the son of David, but Judah. David is from the tribe of Judah, but also God promised that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. And so, so we know that all makes sense, but what makes a little less sense, especially given that in genealogies this was very uncommon, was the inclusion of the names of four women. We see these women as Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and even not mentioned by name, just simply the wife of Uriah. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Tamar, as recorded in Genesis 38, is the daughter, daughter-in-law of Judah, who plays the harlot in order to trick Judah to keep his promises. Rahab is the harlot, possibly one who ran a, a house of women of, we'll say, ill repute, since the children are in the room this morning, who in Joshua 2 assists the spies of Israel. We have Ruth. Now, Ruth isn't clearly immoral in some of the ways that we, isn't involved in sexual immorality, but to be clear, she is a descendant of Lot, and if you know the story of how his descendants came to be, you know there is immorality there. And she is a Moabite. And if you want to read that story, just go to Genesis 19 later. But even despite that heritage, she becomes the great-grandmother of David. And finally, we have the wife of Uriah, who's not even mentioned by name, possibly because the scandal of this situation is so great that one that was so close to God, namely David, would fall so far to having an affair with this woman Bathsheba. And truly she is more victim than she is victimizer in this situation in 2 Samuel 11. This is interesting because women are mentioned at all, but it's also interesting because all these women are non-Jewish women. Every single one of them a Gentile. Not a single one of them directly from the lineage of Abraham. So in this this genealogy from Abraham to David, we already see the gospel expanding from God's chosen people, from the tribe of Judah, to all people, to Gentiles. And not only to Gentiles, but to sinners. And you know what? You don't have to look at the women to see sin. In fact, truly in most of these cases, where you really see the sin is not with the women, but the men who they're connected to in this genealogy. Tamar is connected to Judah. 
The only reason she did what she did was because she knew where he would be and what he would want at that time. We see also Rahab, who, who, gets, who, who, who redeems her name among the people of Israel and is included among them. We see Ruth, who is faithful to Naomi, her mother-in-law, to the very end. And we see Uriah, who bears the son of David, Solomon. Even though it was through adultery, and it was to a man who would have her husband killed. We look to Jesus and we think, well, maybe the family members in our family tree aren't so bad after all. Although if you read that biography, you'll have a hard time for me. But maybe some of you are thinking, maybe the family members in my tree aren't so bad after all. And all these Gentile women and all these sinners point to the mercy of God that is on full display for all. In all of these situations, we would be arrogant and we would be fools to say anything less than, but for the grace of God, so go I. And so we see, as a Bruner, Frederick Bruner says in his commentary, one gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament until he could locate the most questionable liaisons possible in order to insert them into his record, and so, finally, to preach the gospel even in his genealogy. That we might hear clearly from even just a list of names that God has mercy upon sinners. And anyone who thinks otherwise is simply missing the point. Now we see in the second list that we have, moving from David to the exile in Babylon, we see that there are four alterations that Matthew makes that also point to Jesus and display, now here, God's judgment. Now these are, again, one of those moments that test your uh, convictions about the Word of God. In fact, I read one person say that it's not surprising that preachers don't preach on the genealogy for fear of the history discounting everything they're going to say. Of course, this is just the kind of opinion you would, opinion you would form if all you do is study history and don't so much study the God of history. We see four changes made, and they're all worth noting. Asaph, in verse 7, it says that, Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Now, if you go and look at a strict genealogy that we have in our Old Testaments, you'll find that it's not Asaph, but King Asa, who is of the lineage here. Yet, by adding one letter, Matthew turns King Asa into King Asaph. He turns him, turns him into the psalmist Asaph, who wrote Psalms 50, and also Psalm 73 through 83. We'll talk more about all these in a moment. It's also worth noting that in verse 8 it says that Joram is the father of Uzziah. Now this is possibly fine. He just misses three people in the middle. He skips three generations by omitting three kings. 
In omitting these three kings, he skips three physical generations, four chapters of the Bible, 2 Chronicles 22 through 25, and 60 years of Israel's history. The third change. Amos, in verse 10, it says, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. Now he changes one letter here, doesn't add one, changes one, so that instead of it saying King Ammon, it becomes the prophet Amos. And finally, in verse 11, we have Jeconiah. Now this is all fine and good, except that Josiah was directly the father of Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim was the father of Jeconiah, but Jehoiakim gets no attention here. Now this could all be very well concerning, and so you realize that Matthew is not trying to write the kind of genealogy you all are trying to write when you sign up for Ancestry.com or go to the local library. Now, I know, some, I know some of you all do this. I know I've done this. Well, my grandmother has done this, and I sat there and watched as she has tried to recount our family's history. Some of you have done this, and you have found many things. You've found maybe where some of your ancestors hail from. You've found connections. Some of you, you know, I, I lived in Scotland briefly. Some of you find that out, and you go, oh man, I'd love to go there because I have all these, there's a bunch of tombstones somewhere that have my family there, you know. The reality, though, is that's not the kind of genealogy Matthew's trying to write. Matthew wants us to see a larger point. Oh, he could sit here and he could recount every dead person in the line of Jesus till his face turns blue. But that's not necessarily the point. He wants us to see God's providence over history, that God has been leading to this moment in which the Christ would come. That it was no mere accident that Jesus was born to Mary, that he was adopted by Joseph, that he, is, that he was in the line of David or in the line of Abraham. He wants it to be incredibly clear that it was no accident, and so he does a few things here. And not only that, but in doing these things, he wants, us to, wants to point to a greater truth. That God's mercy and his judgment are on full display. See, by changing King Asa into the psalmist Asaph and King Ammon into the prophet Amos, he does this to display the truth of the judgment. When we read Asaph and Amos, well, okay, let me re rephrase that. When a Jewish person who knew their Bibles read Asaph and Amos, they would think psalmist and prophet. Now, if you know your Old Testament wells, you might, you might still well do that. But if you're like me, maybe you don't know them as well as you would like. And so you don't know that these changes were even made. Now, some of you might remember a time in which you were told to memorize the presidents. Now, I know that if you did that when you were younger, maybe there's been a few added, and maybe you don't remember them. I don't know. But... Some of you may have done that. Some of you have seen kids do that. I remember every so often someone will share a video of a kid naming all the presidents. Well, it wouldn't have been dissimilar for some children in the Jewish world to memorize their kings and to know them by name. And so when their names of kings changed, when their names of kings omitted, Matthew's not trying to pull a fast one on these people. He's just simply trying to record the history in a way where we can understand the greater truths the truth that Christ, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. The truth that in his coming, both mercy and judgment are coming. 
So when we see Asaph and Amos, we think psalmist and prophet. The psalmist were the singers of God's praises, the prophets the warners of God's judgment. And by invoking these two images, Matthew points us to spiritual renewal and justice. Now churches, especially today, try to separate the two. They really do. You'll meet some churches that major on spiritual renewal. They're all about the gospel. They're all about getting people real religious. And then you know some people who, some churches who major on justice. They're all about justice. To the point that sometimes they want justice for things that aren't very just. And so we have a bit of an issue. When we try to tear apart what God never intended to be separate. We see Jesus, the great bringer of the gospel... The great Messiah who died on a cross for our sins. In Luke chapter 4, as I read during a pastoral prayer, verses 18 and 19, Jesus quotes, he's, he's reading from a scroll from Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he says, this reading is fulfilled in your presence today. I don't know. Sounds like Jesus, who died on the cross for our spiritual renewal, was concerned about even justice for the poor and the oppressed. And it's foolish to think we can tear these things apart. Because God certainly never did. You don't have to read the prophets long to see that their greatest gripe against Israel wasn't that they made sacrifices to God and were very spiritual religious people. But their biggest gripe was that they did it while ignoring the poor among them and oppressing those who had the least. And so when we see the psalmist and the prophet, we see that in Christ we will see both justice and renewal brought to the world. And Jesus is going to bring spiritual renewal and justice far greater than any one of us could bring ourselves, than even the church can bring itself, than even a great politician might bring themselves. Another change that we see is that of, uh, in verse 8, where it says, Joram the father of Uzziah. Now, Joram was not the direct father of Uzziah. He was actually his great-great-grandfather. There's a few generations skipped here in Matthew's retelling of the gospel. Now, we need to be clear. Maybe you grew up reading something like the King James Version, and you remember reading this as begat. You know, Bob begat John, begat Jim, begat Joe, you know, whatever. And you remember reading all the begats. Well, that word begat, which is connected to the word for genealogy, connected to the word for Genesis is the word translated here, father of. And that word does not intend that it has to be the immediate father of. So there's not really a problem in saying that Joram begat Uzziah, or that Joram was the father of Uzziah, unless you have this reading of that word that says it has to be the direct, direct father. But, but that's not the intention. So him skipping a few generations really isn't a problem at all. Now there's a few theories as to why Matthew skips a few generations here. I won't recount all of them, but the simplest one is that these kings were so wicked that he didn't want to include them. I find that kind of odd. 
since he includes a lot of wicked people in this genealogy. Uh, maybe you could say that these were wicked men who never repented, whereas a lot of the people in this list clearly repented. Maybe that is the case. I, we don't know. But what we do know is Matthew omits them, probably for some other purposes, probably just to simplify his genealogy so it's easier to read, so it's easier to memorize. Can you believe that of all the scripture you'd want to memorize in the Bible, that Matthew might want you to memorize this? But here he is, writing it so that it's easy to memorize, it seems. Now, it may be that the fact that these wicked kings who never repented aren't included here is at least a sign to us now of the judgment of God to come. Not only has he replaced a king with a prophet, not only has he replaced a king with a psalmist who actually writes about judgment, but here he excludes three kings who never repented. And so with those who never repent in this life, who never turn from their sins and turn toward God in faith, so with them the judgment of God will rest and it will be their end. Now the final alteration... I really don't think it's a big deal. It's a, it's a simple exclusion of one person. Um, and again, because the word begat doesn't, mean, doesn't need to mean the direct father of, I don't think there's so much of a problem. Now, why do I focus so much on these four women that are included and these four alterations? You might be thinking, I didn't come here for a history lesson. I didn't come here for a grammar lesson. Why are we doing all this? I think it's because there is a far greater point when we turn to verses 12 to 16, and that is the change. See, Matthew says that each of these is 14 generations, but here we get to the end of this third group, and there's been no extra women, no alterations until verse 16, in which we see one major woman included and one major alteration. It says in verse 16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. We have a fifth woman mentioned, and the fifth alteration is instead of mentioning how Joseph is the father of Jesus, it says that he was born from Mary. In doing all of this, we get four sets of women, four alterations that lead us to this conclusion. There is a greater One coming who was not fathered in this lineage, but was born of a woman. This fifth woman. We see here the importance of this genealogy. That at the end of it, there is Jesus who is the Christ. That at the end of it, God does a miraculous thing. Throughout all of this, miracles are happening. Throughout all this, God is at work to bring about from the the lineage of David, from the tribe of Judah, from the family of Abraham, a Messiah for his people and for all nations. But at the end of all this, this is meant to point directly to Jesus. Now, one question arises if you're like me, and you say, wait a minute, this genealogy ends with Joseph in verse 16, but he never fathers Jesus in verse 16. So what was the point? I don't know about you all, 
Maybe some of you do have adoption in your families. And if you were to sit down and record your genealogy, you would probably likely go along the path of physical relatives and ancestry. But as this point will become clear again and again and again, at this time in history, if you adopted someone, they were as much in your family and in your family tree as if they were born there like any of your other children. And so the reason, and in fact it's even more necessary, because this is how strict that idea was. It was so strict that it was more important what the lineage is of your adopted father than your birth mother. Because your ancestry was dependent on your father. And so it was more important for Matthew to establish that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. To go to the lineage of Joseph, his adopted father, than to go through the lineage of Mary, his birth mother. It's that much more important. And and this should give us all hope. One, if if you do have adopted family, you ought to remember how much... The family matters more than the adopted matters. That, that in every conceivable way, you should consider them your family. And perhaps you were adopted. And you should consider yourself as much a part of that family as anyone else who wasn't. But it's also to say this, that in Romans and in Galatians, Paul says that we who have believed in Jesus, those who are of Christ, have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, and we cry to God, Abba, Father. The reality is we have all been adopted, but like Jesus, that adoption does not make us any less of God's children. It makes us as much his children as if we were begotten ex nihilo, out of nothing, from God. If you have been adopted into the family of Christ, you need not worry whether you are in God's family or not. You simply are. And so we see this all points, though, to the one who was born of Mary, who is called Christ, Messiah, anointed one, representative of Israel, son of David, son of Abraham. In verse 17... Matthew concludes his genealogy by saying this. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the departure or to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now you've got to forgive Matthew a bit for his math, you've got to forgive him a bit for his history, but that's not his point. There are a lot of theories why Matthew is so excited about three groups of 14. And the truth is, I think they're all so speculative, we'd lose our minds trying to figure it out. But what we do know is that when Matthew looks upon the genealogy of Jesus, even this genealogy that he wrote, that in some sense inspired by the Holy Spirit, he edited to tell this story. He says, praise be to God, that throughout our history, God has been bringing a Messiah we see that God has moved us from the time of the patriarchs with Abraham to the time of the kings of David to the time of the deportation in Babylon to the exile. And here we are. We are back in the land of Abraham, but we are still under the authority of another nation. We are still under the rule of Rome, but the good news is that Christ the Messiah has come. 
It's like when you take, if you've ever seen a rug, a beautiful rug laid out, and you flip it over to the other side. It's not as pretty on the other side. You see all the knots and the work that went into making it. So, you might think it's lesser. But if you've ever seen anyone make one of those things, you start to go, wow, this is amazing. You start to appreciate the magic behind it. In fact, it's like going to a magic show and you watch all the tricks. You say, wow, that's amazing. I have no clue how they do any of that. I'm gonna, here's another embarrassing detail I'll add about my life. At one point, I was really into magic, as most uh, young guys are at some point. Uh, maybe, you, maybe not all young guys, but you know, I was interested in magic. What really became cool was when I learned a few of the tricks, I could start to watch uh, performers do magic tricks. It's not magic, right? It's tricks. The, the whole thing, there's stuff going on behind the scenes that you don't see. But you know what? At some point, you start to appreciate all the things going on behind the scenes that you don't see. And there's actually a beauty to the skill that goes into it. In that same way, when we pull back the curtain and we see what Matthew is doing, which would have been clear to many of his readers, there's something we appreciate, not just the beauty of God's work, but the artistry of the inspired writer writing these things so that we can clearly see that God's mercy, God's judgment, and here in promising and fulfilling his promise of the Messiah to come from a woman, his faithfulness are clear. We see God's working through history to bring the one who will be our Savior and our Lord. And through it, we see the character of God, that he is merciful to sinners, that he brings judgment to those who do not turn to him, and that he is faithful to the uttermost for those who who are loved by him and who love him in return. So throughout this genealogy, God's providence and power are on full display that today we can trust, knowing that Christ has come, knowing that he has died for our sins, that he has been raised from the dead, that he has ascended on high to the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes on our behalf, where he points to the Father the sacrifice he made for us, and from there he will come and return. We can trust today. We can have hope that not only were our greatest needs taken care of nearly 2,000 years ago, but he will be coming soon. So as our passage, our Advent passage said today, stay awake. Be alert. Remember your master is returning. And he will come again. Let's pray.